This is episode number 103 with Dory Clark. Welcome to Transform Talks, the only podcast that cuts straight through the hype and noise on supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, the CEO and co-founder of the Future Insights Network. Join me as I uncover the stories and delve deeper into the topics that really matter to you. It's not easy being a leader during these complex, volatile, and uncertain times. Today's leaders have great responsibility, and their success is based on their ability to generate breakthrough ideas that will lead to competitive advantage and innovation. The challenge is to find the time to focus on those long-term goals whilst managing the day-to-day. Equally, today's leaders need to be able to influence their boards and their subordinates to drive change and help their organizations maximize value through continuous improvement and transformation. And that's why I'm very excited to announce this episode's special guest is someone that's a top 50 globally recognized business thinker, author, and the number one communication coach in the world. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dory Clark, author of the recent book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory will be giving us tips and advice on how professionals can generate breakthrough ideas for maximum impact at a time when organizations are rapidly changing and adopting new technologies to transform their processes, grow their offerings, and become more resilient. Let's get started. Uh, First of all, welcome. Welcome to to this podcast and welcome for being here with us. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks, Maria. I'm so glad to talk with you as well. Okay, so here we go. Now, I know, obviously, everyone knows you've written three books, Reinventing You, Stand Out, and Entrepreneurial You. Now, to help others take control of their professional lives and make an impact in the world, that's that's why you wrote them. But what drove you to, to realize this passion? Well, I think like a lot of people, the way that I came to what I'm doing now was a little bit like driving in the fog. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you could you could see a foot or two ahead, but that that might be about it. So the the short version of um what what happened and how I came to do the work that I do now is that originally I was a journalist and I ended up getting laid off from my job. And so I had to reinvent myself and I ended up shifting into politics. Um, I had been a political reporter. And so I, I moved over into working for campaigns because there were no journalism jobs to be had. And uh, I worked on some really exciting campaigns. I worked on a governor's race. I worked on a uh, presidential campaign running press, but uh, we lost. <laughs> so uh, I, I ran a nonprofit for a couple of years and it was in the course of running the nonprofit that I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is the same thing. This is, this is really the same thing as running a business. And so I decided that I would run my own. And that was about 15 years ago. And so I think uh, over time, for a lot of us, our our purpose or uh, the sweet spot of what we're trying to accomplish crystallizes over time through through the doing. You know, oftentimes mm-hmm. we try to think our way to the answer, but sometimes it's more effective to uh, to act our way to the answer. Yeah. Well, you know, we before we started rolling, you and I were talking about how so much has changed. You know, in the, in the last fifteen years, and I mean, if we if we take this to supply chains. Uh, all around the world, supply chains are undergoing major transformations right now or uh, beginning their transformations. I mean, it really is a state of flux. How would you advise, uh, I guess, senior supply chain leaders who are perhaps at the very early stages of their transformation journeys, but have really big ideas? How would you advise them uh, on how they take those ideas to their senior leadership and get the support they need to realize it? Yeah, well, I think one 
element that um, obviously I'm sure caused a lot of stress for people over the past 18 months. Uh, but in the end, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in life where uh, it's kind of rough in the moment, but afterwards uh, you can classify it as a good experience, but more than ever, um, both you know, the, the most senior levels throughout an organization, as well as the general public, was forced to think about and reckon with the importance of supply chain over the pandemic. Mm. I mean, for, for people in Western countries, we've really never had a situation where for a protracted amount of time, you just couldn't get things. I mean, uh, you know, it's like, unheard of for us. It's unheard of. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden we were transported back to Soviet times. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, we can all appreciate, I think, um, you know, whatever, whenever there's a hurricane, everybody wants yeah. to buy beer or something for a day, but it passes and you move on. And meanwhile, uh, for like a year, there were things that I couldn't get. Like, like for a year, I've been like, why can't I buy Lysol? Are they like not mm -hmm. making Lysol? Like what's going mm -hmm. on? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, everybody understands now that what you are doing is absolutely mission critical. And so I think that this is, this is a platform where, you know, COVID has essentially grabbed everybody by the collar and shaken them. And so if supply chain did not necessarily get the full respect that it deserved before, now it commands that respect. And so I think that there's a sense of understanding about the urgency and the importance of what, what you want to do and what you want to accomplish. So I, I think that that's one asset that supply chain executives now have in their back pocket. But broadly speaking, when it comes to uh, you know spreading uh, their ideas and really being able to mobilize support. I, I actually wrote a book a couple of years ago called Standout, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. And uh, it, in many ways, it's about this question of, you know, how, how do you get your idea to traction, whether that's inside a company, inside an industry, whatever it is. And I would say that um, one thing that is useful to keep in mind uh, actually, I'll, I'll throw out two. Uh, one is always the importance of socializing the idea behind the scenes uh, beforehand, yeah. because to the extent possible, you want to, you know, it's like elections, right? People are like, oh, what's going to happen on election day? Well, I can tell you from working on campaigns, if the campaign is well run, you know weeks in advance whether you're going to win or not, because you have been talking to voters and polling them and knocking on doors and making phone calls, and you have your numbers. And then it's just a question of turning out those voters. So similarly, if you're entering a meeting or something like that, you should ideally know in advance whether that idea is going to have traction and support because you have reached out to people and canvassed them and addressed their objections up front to get them on board. The second piece is that we have learned through, uh, through psychology and uh, behavioral science that loss aversion is something that is often much more salient to people than possible gains. And everybody likes possible gains. And it's what we often talk about in the business world. But I think a real card that supply chain can play is uh, the fact that what freaks, you know, what, what freaks people out, what gets them motivated even more than the idea of like, oh, we can earn so much more money is the idea of, hey, do you want to avoid catastrophe? Yeah. Let me explain to you what 
could happen. And in fact, let's rewind. Let's rewind to what did happen in so many places and in so many industries a year ago. And to the extent that we can remind people of that and paint a picture and help them understand that the proactive decisions that they're making today to benefit supply chain are the things that will keep them from being fired in six or 12 months, then you can often get them on your side. Mm. Well, I think that's a, that's a powerful, powerful as well, uh, uh, way that you've described it. Let me, let me shift gears for just a second and maybe give you another question from another perspective. So let's say, for example, you are a senior supply chain leader with a lot, you know, within a large organization, you have a sizable budget, you know, and you're, uh, you already have the support for big, bold projects. Now, how do you filter the bad ideas from the truly breakthrough ideas? And then more importantly, once you have the, the great ideas, how do you empower your teams to, to, to even come up with better ideas in the first place? Yeah, this is, this is, of course, an important question because we, we all want innovation. We all want the best ideas. And yet, in the moment, until something is proven, uh, it's very hard to tell the wheat from the chaff. So yeah. this is something I actually, I have a new book that's coming out in September from Harvard Business okay. Review Press. It's called The Long Game. And I talk about this quite a lot because ultimately, if if we are going to capture the benefits of innovation, which you know every, everyone thinks is a is a good idea, um, we need to be strategic in how we do it. And ultimately, this is a place where we, you know, this is filtered into the culture a little bit, but I, I think it's it's really worth drilling down on and concentrating on. Uh, this is a place where I think we can all benefit from learning some of the lessons of Silicon Valley and the, the lean startup methodology. Um, they mm -hmm. talk a lot about the minimum viable product and about pilot testing. And I think that can't be overemphasized because ultimately the key thing that, you know, the most important aspect of innovation is understanding that you just, you want to test things, but you don't want to get out over your skis. You don't want mm -hmm. to overextend yourself because the truth is if you spend a billion dollars on an initiative and it fails, um, you've failed. That's really mm -hmm. bad. But if you have an initiative and you spend, Ten thousand bucks, and you know, or whatever the the relevant equivalents are, um, you know, in a large corporation, who cares? It's a test. It's not a failure. You know, it's it's like if you know if you and I went out uh, to a casino, Maria, mm. and you know, if if I if I lose a hundred thousand dollars overnight gambling, that is a really big problem. But if you come and you have 10 bucks and you spend 10 bucks on slot machines and it doesn't work out, have you failed? I mean, no, like whatever no. you entertain it's yourself. Perspective. It's perspective, yeah. you know, perspective. Yes. Yeah, so the question is how, how can you spend the least amount of money and time possible in order to gather useful data about whether you should keep testing that, that is it, you know, instead of mapping out the journey from here to the destination, it really is, it is driving in the fog. It's all right. Well, mm -hmm. you know, let's try something. Did that work? No. All right. Well, never mind then. Let's do something else. Did it work? Yes. Okay. Well, let's try a little something more and see if that keeps working. And the more we can do that, the more we can safely gather data and work our way toward innovation without putting ourselves too much at risk. And insofar as, you know, creating an environment that allows teams to fail, succeed, uh, what advice would you have, you know, there? Well, the most, the most important element 
is, you know, of course, it's it's easy to praise people when they succeed. That is usually not a problem for most leaders. Um, the issue and and the thing that actually is the most powerful is as a leader to praise the process and to celebrate people even when they fail, if they fail for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. So meaning, um, whenever there is an uncertain process, which innovation always is definitionally, you, you don't know, like you have an even chance, could work, might not work, whatever. And clearly if someone makes a stupid mistake, you know, if they repeat something that's already been done or they like miscalculated something Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever they were sloppy, then sure, you know, clamp down. That's ridiculous. We don't need that. But if someone, if someone did everything right and it just happened not to work, that needs to be celebrated as well, because what employees are conditioned to expect is this kind of kill the messenger thing that like, oh, well, of course, if it goes well, you know, they'll get the thumbs up. And if it goes badly, they're going to get their, you know, their head handed to them. And if they see if they see that that is actually not true, if it's like all of a sudden this kind of man bites dog situation where like, whoa, they failed. And yet the boss is praising them and is celebrating what they did. It is so unusual that it really makes a deep and lasting impression on people. And it solidifies what are the values that you actually are optimizing for, which is, yes, let's experiment. Let's try. Uh, I'm not going to punish you if, you know, luck is not on our side in this particular experiment. And that is really what encourages people. They, They look for what is incentivized. So long as the process, like you say, so long as the processes are followed, so long as, you know, uh, all the boxes are ticked and someone didn't just necessarily go off on one and and completely not follow direction and and failed. Yeah, like you say, yeah, things like that aren't necessary. But can, can we move now to automation? You know, so many companies are becoming increasingly automated, you know, so how do leaders manage now in an increasingly automated business, you know, how do they uh, capitalize on the opportunities, but also get the most out of their teams and manage their teams to drive success in however it's defined uh, these days? Yeah, it it is an interesting question. And clearly in the public sphere, uh, automation and and AI and all its variations uh, get talked about a lot. So I think there's a a few things at play. Um, One is navigating how employees actually work with the automation um, because it's not, it's not necessarily uh, intuitive. I mean, maybe the technical part is, but perhaps not (laughs) the emotional part of it. Mm -hmm. So I I think ultimately as a leader, the useful messaging, you know, what, what people are worried about, of course, is that automation is going to replace them, that, that, yeah. they, that they are commodities, that they're cogs, and uh, that, you know, all you want to do is get rid of them, uh, which clearly is, you know, not optimally motivating. So I, I think that the messaging needs to be around, and hopefully the truth is as well, uh, that the automation is about making things easier so that people can actually be doing higher level tasks that will hopefully be both more beneficial to the company and more interesting for them. I mean, 
you know, washing machines were, you know, crazy technology back in the day. And, you know, I mean, no, no one now is afraid that washing machines are going to take over the world and, and ruin their lives. You know, we understand, oh, you know, maybe I don't need to spend those four hours beating clothing against a rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it really did free up our time for, for more and better things. Um, but for any new technology, there's, of course, a tendency to, to worry, to catastrophize. And so the more we can explain and, and perhaps even over explain, um, because, you know, we think sometimes saying things once is enough. It's not. No. You have to say things 10 times uh, in different ways so that people really understand. But having that, that messaging about, you know, that we, we want to be freeing up people's capacity so that they are doing less of the rote work that, um, you know, is probably not even that interesting and more of the deep work that can actually move the company forward meaningfully and, uh, and engage their thoughts, their intellects, uh, their judgment. Uh, I think the more people can get on board with it. I think you're right. I think a lot of times people focus or leaders might focus on the solution and not necessarily on the problem it's trying to solve for, you know, clients, for employees, for, you know, for everyone. Right. And so there's the focus on the tech, um, the digital future, you know, the digital future, you could argue it's the digital present really. Uh, so how can leaders prepare themselves for digital future? I mean, I hear, I interview people who are like telling me that they're taking coding classes and, uh, is that where we're headed? Does the, the leader of today to become the leader of tomorrow need to be a coder? Do they need to be fluent in coding and technology in order to lead a, a data-driven organization or what are the skills that they need? Well, I mean, you know, c- certainly learning to code is great. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to understand and to be able to to dive in a little bit. Um, you know, we can assume that that most leaders, most senior leaders, probably don't have the time or bandwidth to become master coders. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, having having a hands-on understanding is great. Um, that being said, though, over time, what tends to happen is that as technology becomes more pervasive, it also becomes more user-friendly. I mean, I think about what it takes to create a website. And Mm. when I was in college, Mm. I, you know, I was literally buying HTML and JavaScript books. And I'm like, maybe I'll make a website. Maybe I'll figure out how to do that. And what that meant was you had to learn to code in order to do it. Now, fast forward to today, you and I can set up a website in like 10 minutes and mm. you can you can do the um, you know the I think you could call it WYSIWYG right what you see mm-hmm. is what you get um, yeah. be, you know with with Wix or with Squarespace or, or you yeah. know even with WordPress like as long as you have a basic understanding of how to do word processing on a computer you can set up a website and it's really pretty fine like oh, I'll just install this theme and blah, blah, blah. you know it's 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 not that hard so it's not ultimately about needing to code. I think that the the further we get in, uh, you know, as time progresses, fewer of us are going to need to code because there's going to be easy interfaces for almost anything, you know, probably creating apps or, you know, even, even creating uh, ultimately maybe AI programs, right? You can probably do all of these things down the road um, at, at a, at a, as a layman. But understanding broadly 
how these things operate. You know, what is it they can do? What can't they do? What are the limits of it? That is crucially important. And so I would say, you know, sure, take the coding class if you're interested in it. But even more broadly, I think reading around the topic so that you understand the parameters of where it can help and where it can't and what it can do now versus what it might be able to do in the future. Those are the questions that I'm really interested in and which I think supply chain leaders need to become conversant in. And, you know, that's that's true for software and coding, uh, but it's also true more broadly for the suite of potential issues that um, that that face us. You know, anything that we think of as a potential opportunity or as a potential threat, um, we don't have to become experts in it, but we at least need to become conversant enough that if we were to find ourselves, you know, stuck in the proverbial elevator with an expert, we could have a meaningful and in-depth conversation. And I think you need to be I think you're right about being conversant in this, you know, that you also need to have a digital mindset, right? You know, so that I think it's a generational thing. Sometimes I, I feel like my answer to the solution is, well, we'll just put a person on doing that when in reality, it could be that it's uh, solved by some sort of easy technology, like you say, Squarespace, building a website in five minutes, you know, that usually would have taken someone else uh, ages. Um, I want to talk about the big C for a second, COVID, you know, it's, it's dominating everything, you know, so uh, how do you think leadership has changed as a consequence of the pandemic? And 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 what's the new working environment going to be like moving forward? Well, I think at least in the short term, what has been a big change is that there has been a, a shift of power toward toward labor and uh, and and perhaps away from uh, the companies themselves in the sense that, if you have a situation, as we do now, where studies are showing that anywhere from 25 to 50% of employees are looking to quit their jobs and make a move, you quickly realize that that is, that is extremely unsustainable. If that actually were to happen, uh, it would be devastating. Mm. And so at least for this moment, and I, and I do think this is frankly a moment that will not last that long, it is a liminal moment where norms are being reestablished. Um, employees have a lot of power because as we're re renegotiating things like, well, where do you work? Uh, what, you know, what's the remote situation? Uh, who, what team are you working on? Who are you reporting to? You know, all, all of these things that, that were uh, a little bit in flux during COVID employers often need to be, if the person is a high quality employee, they need to be sensitive to that because at least for the moment, as we're trying to reestablish uh, just, you know, what, what is normal and how do we get back to business? You don't want to be onboarding more people. Um, you, mm. you, you want to have some kind of stability. So I think that the net result of this is that we are going to be forced into some kind of flexibility because it is going to be at least for the near term paramount to retain top talent. And it may require, particularly around issues of job flexibility, uh, it may require having, uh, you know, diff different policies that are adapted to the individual rather than as in the past where you had a set, uh, a set of, of regulations and everybody had to adhere to that. So I think it is an interesting moment in that way. Uh, whether it sticks or not, uh, it's hard to predict. But I do think it will probably be a competitive advantage for companies because clearly it's something that employees are now more focused on. 
you know, before it might've been much more biased towards salary or, or whatever, because uh, employees perceived that there was not uh, there was not necessarily a lot of room, in, except for very particular companies, to negotiate about um, hybrid environments or uh, flex time or things like that. Now they see an opening, and it's something that they value a lot more. And so if you want to be competitive, being able to have that in your arsenal of things to offer is, uh, is I, I think, something that, that will be useful for employers moving forward. Well, certainly it- COVID demonstrated that the possibility of it, it wasn't going to break businesses, you know, and I think if you had if rewound to maybe two years ago and had employees saying, I want to work from home from now on, most people would have just said, no, impossible, can't happen. And now we've proven that this, this experiment has actually worked to a certain degree. Like you say, whether or not it'll be here to stay forever is, is, uh, is something that we'll find out. I, for one, I'm not leaving my dogs. You know, I, I think I'm going to be chaining myself to my desk here. I am not leaving my dogs. Uh, but I, let's see how it goes for other people. Dory, this is this is all the time that we've got. I want to thank you for being here and thank you for answering our questions. And we look forward to maybe seeing you again. I appreciate it, Maria. It's so great to have the opportunity to talk with you. And I'll actually just mention that if folks are interested in diving more into topics around strategic thinking and long-term thinking, which post COVID, I, I suspect is going to be, There'll be a lot of relevant. Yeah, yeah. I, my, uh, I have a free self-assessment, uh, that I've created tied to my new book, uh, and folks can download it for free. It's the long game strategic thinking self-assessment, and they can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. Perfect. Thank you so much. We'll definitely send people that way. I think everybody should uh, definitely look at the self-assessment as a tool. Thanks for joining us today at transform talks. I hope you found this valuable. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, comment, and share. I'll see you at the next one.